Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. My name's Stephen Baker. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're here newly or visiting, I'm glad to have you. And uh, we'll be looking today at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. The, uh, it's interesting, the, those who planned the service, I'm assuming, uh, assuming Jody planned the service this week, the one who led our worship, um, had no idea what I was preaching or that I was preaching um, today. But the service itself perfectly fits this psalm. Everything about it. Uh, from the call to worship to the songs that we sang, the prayer of confession, the call to repentance, all of that. Um, even the offertory. And God put this service together uh, around Psalm 34, you could say. It's very sweet. So keep your ears open to the themes that we've already been introduced to today and let's read Psalm 34, listen to the word of God. Um, The Psalm 34 begins at the top, it's not on the screen but it's in your Bible, a heading that tells you when David, who wrote it and when he wrote it. So David wrote it and it tells us when he wrote it. So I'm gonna read that to you even though it's not on the screen here. It says, a Psalm of David when he feigned madness, feigned means uh, pretended, faked. So when he pretended to be crazy before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. We'll come back to that in a minute. Here's the Psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life? And love's length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. 
evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. And so as I said at the beginning of the psalm, right at the top in the heading, it tells us who wrote it, David wrote it, and it tells us when. It says, when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and then he departed. And we read about that in 1 Samuel 21. So I wanna look at that so that we understand what's going on. Uh, so 1 Samuel 21. Now interestingly, this, uh, it says at the top of Psalm 34, when David feigned madness before Abimelech, and then in 1 Samuel 21, it's not Abimelech, it's a man named Achish, who's the king of Gath. We'll read this in a second. Uh, Achish would be the man's name. Abimelech would be the title, okay? Abimelech means my father is king. So it's, it's like the, the royal title, like Pharaoh, it would be the royal title of Egypt. Uh, Caesar, the royal title, the emperor you know, of Rome. A president in our country. It's not his name, but it's his title, right? So Abimelech is the title, but the man's name is Achish, just to, so you're not confused. Look at what happens here. This is 1 Samuel 21, 10, and we'll read through into chapter 22 a little bit. So it says, then David arose and fled that day from Saul. So this is when Saul, who is the king, is persecuting and pursuing and trying to kill David. David has been anointed to be the next king, and Saul hates him. You remember the story, right? And so he's running. He runs away from Saul. It says, David arose and fled that day from Saul and went up to Achish, king of Gath. Now, is that weird? Who, who, who was also from Gath? Goliath was from Gath, right? Goliath, the, 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 the giant, the Philistine, the one that David years earlier had killed and cut his head off. Remember this? And Achish is that king. So he's kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? Running away from Saul, where can I go? I don't know, I'll go to, I'll go to Gath. Where, he's in a bad way. Verse 11, but the servants of Achish said to him, said to Achish the king, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they, did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? This is David. What are you doing letting David come here? David is a warrior who kills ten thousands. Remember, he killed Goliath. And so, verse 12, David took these words to heart, and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Good idea. So he disguised his sanity before them. He disguised his sanity. That's a weird way of saying it. <laughs> he had sanity, but he disguised it. And acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. You can picture this. He's acting crazy. He's drooling, he's foaming at the mouth, writing weird things on the door, who knows what he's writing. And then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? 
what every, every royal official has ever said, you know? I got plenty of madmen to go around. I don't need another one. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to? Act the madman in, mad in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Now look what happens, the next chapter. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And that's interesting because remember before his brothers didn't have anything to do with him. He was the punk kid who was out in the field taking care of the sheep and we don't need to pay attention to him. And you're just a proud little punk and you came to kill Goliath and who do you think you are? Well, now they're coming to him. Verse two, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. (laughs) Quite the entourage. And he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. So this Psalm, right, Psalm 34, is composed probably, I would guess, uh, in the cave, right there, after all this happened. And he sits down and he writes this psalm. Now here's the weird thing about that, okay? The account is of him pretending to lose his mind, drooling over his beard, acting crazy, scribbling weird things on the door, whatever he's doing. But this psalm is one of the most uh, carefully composed psalms that there there is. Um, It's one of those psalms, there aren't many of them, where you, you take the first letter of the first line of each verse, basically, and it's um, the, letter of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. Okay, so you know, in our language, A, the first line starts with A, the second line starts with B, the third line starts with C. In other words, this takes care and, and thought and, and, and work. This isn't, Psalm 34 is not the ravings of a madman, even though it was written in the context of him pretending to be a madman, okay? And it's very sweet and it's very um, encouraging. The other interesting thing is is it doesn't mention the circumstances at all. So that's Psalm 34. Now, I have to say this about this, this context of the Psalm. David is um, acting like a madman. Now, is he a madman? Is he insane? Yes or no? No, so he's, but he's acting insane. So what do you call that? He's lying. Um, the commentators that, that I read about this, all of them say, this is a sin. And they make a good point that they say, this is a sin, and yet God delivered him anyway, and God was kind to him anyway, and we, we're all sinners, and even at our best times, we're, we, we're filled with sin, so everything we do is marred by sin, and yet God still takes pity, and, and that's a good point, Right? The thing is, I don't think it was a sin, actually. Uh, You remember the saying we have, um, all is fair in love and war. Now, I don't don't endorse the all is fair in love thing. I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) But you can make an argument that all is fair in war. And this is war. Uh, Remember um, the Hebrew midwives. They're in Egypt, the Pharaoh has commanded that they kill, as they're there for the delivery of the babies of the Hebrews, that they kill the firstborn 
not the firstborn, just the males, all the males, or hand them over to be killed, right? Remember this? Now, is that a lawful command for a civil magistrate to make? No. So what do the Hebrew midwives do? They, they lie. They get there, they deliver the babies, then the Pharaoh's men come looking and they say, hey, we got here too late. Uh, the, these Hebrew women are really strong and they gave birth without us and I, we don't know where the boys went. Okay, so they lie, and they preserve the lives of these babies. Rahab, right, in the, in the conquest of Canaan, she hides the spies, she takes them in, she puts them hiding in the roof, remember the story? And the guards come looking for the, sla- uh, the spies, and she says, I don't know where they are. Or they left, they left already, I think is what she says. Was that an act of faith or of or sin? Well, scripture tells us it was an act of faith in Hebrews 11, all right? The apostle Paul, he's uh, in Damascus. He's preaching the gospel. The Jews wanna kill him. They get the ruler of Damascus on their side and he's looking to find the apostle Paul and arrest him and, and try him and kill him. And they let him down the, ba- uh, the wall in a basket. In other words, he, he skips town. He doesn't, he doesn't turn himself in. The authorities are looking for him, but he doesn't turn himself in. He runs. This is the kind of thing you see, and there's probably more examples I'm not thinking of all through scripture, certainly all through history. All right, these aren't acts of unbelief. These actually are acts of faith. What it says of the Hebrew mid- midwives, it says, they feared the Lord, therefore they misled the Pharaoh. That's what it says. It was an act of honor to the true king. Uh, so is there any application of that for us? I, well, I think there is. Um, when, when they come to knock on your door, right, whoever they might be. Uh, This is the kind of thing that happens in the history of the world. They come and knock on people's doors. You understand what I'm saying? They come and knock on your door and they're not up to any good. Um, And they're there to make demands of you that are unlawful. Either according to the laws of the land, certainly according to the laws of God. And when they come to knock on your door and make demands of you that are unlawful, what are you gonna do? What if they come and say, knock on your door and say, uh, do you discipline your children? Well, what do you mean? Well, do you spank your children? Yes, I never tell a lie. You know, Ooh, yes, I do. Do you teach your children uh, that homosexuality is a sin in the eyes of God? Yes, sir, I do. Never tell a lie. Well. This is about your conscience and you need to deal with this, okay? But when they come knocking on your door and say, let me in and and let me see and tell me about your children. These kinds of things happen, don't they? They've happened recently in our church. They've happened many times. What are you gonna say? Here's my kids. This This is war. When they come knocking, now this is gonna get all dicey, I understand, but if they come knocking on your door and say, time to hand over the guns, what do you say? Do you say, well, I'm a Christian and I always do what the government tells me to do? 
Really? The government tells you to stop preaching and to stop disciplining your children and to stop, uh, you know, uh, believing the truth about all anything? You're going to say, I'll, I'll do what the government tells me to do? No. All right, so there's a place for this. All that to say, I don't think... <laughs> You can apply this however you want. I don't think David was sinning. That's my point. There's no, there is no indication of that. He, uh, he doesn't repent of it in the psalm, right? Nothing in the, in the passage, 1 Samuel says anything that this was a sin. It got him out of a hard spot. It was a time of war and it worked. And then what does he say in the psalm? What is the psalm all about? How, how crafty and clever he was? No. The Lord delivered me. The Lord delivered me. The Lord delivers us. Sometimes with uh, Hebrew midwives saying, ah, we got here too late. And sometimes Rahab saying, ah, I don't know, they left already. And sometimes Paul slipping over the wall in a basket. And sometimes King David acting like a madman. So you take this and apply it yourself. Don't tell him, don't tell him I said any of that when they come knocking on your door. All right, so let's look at the psalm. The psalm, that's the occasion of it. Let's look at the psalm itself. There's actually two parts, you could say. Uh, The first half is a hymn where he's praising God, and the second half is more like a sermon where he's teaching us. Um, So it's like a little miniature worship service wrapped up in the psalm. First the hymn, then the sermon. He says in verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So notice, this is, a, this is a, an act of resolve. This is an act of his will. He says, I will do this. I will do this. This is what I've decided to do. I will bless the Lord at all times. Right? Not just in the good times. Not just when things are easy. Not just things, when things are happy. Not just when things are smooth and, and rosy. I will bless the Lord at all times. Happy, sad, joyful, painful. Scripture says, the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Give thanks in every circumstance, he says. Uh, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's that kind of thing. This is a resolve. I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be in my mouth. Um, we sang, I said the service matches this song perfectly. We sang, the first song that we sang was Blessed be your name. And that's what that song says, isn't it? Um, No matter what. Joyful, sad. I can't ever hear that song or sing that song without thinking of the Rasmussens. Right? It was the song that they sang at the funeral of their daughter all those years ago. And to this day, I can't hear that song without thinking of that. And what a sweet song to sing at the, at the funeral of your daughter. I will bless the Lord at all times. Not just when things are good. His praise will continually be in my mouth. What an act of faith to have that song and to sing it. Now look what he says. He says, his praise shall continually be in my heart. Right? 
No. His praise will continually be in my mouth. All right? We are really bad at this, I think. Some of you are great at it. I'm not. Um, Having his praise in your mouth. Look at what it says next. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, but the humble will hear it. What is the what does a soul boasting in the Lord sound like? How do you do you have to get a stethoscope? You know, how what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like words coming out of your mouth. That's what it sounds like. All right? We need to be better at this. Praising with our mouths. Praising such that our soul could be boasting in the Lord, but the people around us hear it. They hear it. They have to hear it. Use your mouth. Remember there's this old saying that uh, is uh, attributed to um, Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, remember him? And it says, uh, supposedly he said, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Remember that saying? All right, you've all heard this? That's, that's stupid. <laughs> you know. Uh, fill your stomach at all times. If necessary, use food. You know? <laughs> Fly to the moon at all times. If necessary, use a rocket. I mean, you can't do it without using words. And you can't praise the Lord without words. So use words. Um, don't, don't, don't count on people who live with you or you work with seeing your face and thinking, oh, hmm. He must be praising the Lord because his, he has a calm look on his, no. Come on, use words. Use words. Come out of the closet and use words. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, verse three, and let us exalt his name together. Now you think of magnifying things. What do we think of magnifying? When you think of magnifying something, what are you, what are you magnifying? Tiny things, right? You kids have used micro, microscopes, some of you. You take a thing that you can't see with your normal eye and you, and you look at it with a microscope and it looks big. Well, that's not the kind of magnification that David's talking about here. God is not little and needs to be made to appear to be large, even though he's not, okay? That's not that kind of magnification. It's the kind of magnification that you think of with a telescope, right? Where there are magnificent and glorious and immense grandeur out there and it's hidden from our eyes, not because it's so small, but because it's so great. And you use a a telescope to, to see it, to magnify it, you understand? That's what it means to magnify the Lord. You're bringing into the open the glory and the greatness, the majesty, the grandeur, the goodness of the Lord. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. All you humble who hear my words, boasting in the Lord, you hear me boasting in the Lord, not boasting in myself or my power, but in the Lord, and therefore the humble rejoice when they hear that, right? When, when the proud boast of themselves, the humble hear it and are, are, are disgusted. 
But when you boast in the Lord, the humble hear it and rejoice. Okay, humble, come on, come on, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's lift up his name together. Praise is always better in a crowd. That's why we come together and worship together. You can't, you can't magnify the Lord alone like you can together. Come on, let's magnify the Lord together. Let's exalt his name. And then in verse four, he starts going back and forth. He starts going back and forth for a few verses between his own personal experience and of God saving him and rescuing him and, and the normal experience of Christians. And they're the same, but he kind of goes back and forth. Look what he does, verse four. He says, I sought the Lord. I did. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. That's my testimony. I sought the Lord. He answered me, delivered me from all of my fears. He didn't just deliver me from the actual dangers and the actual enemies that I had. He actually, he, he delivered me even from my fears, right? Think of your fears. God delivers you from your enemies, but also from even your fears. And then verse five, they looked to him and were radiant. So now he's talking about all, all believers, all of God's people all the time. They looked to him and were radiant. They looked to him. What does radiant mean? You know, you're, uh, their faces were glowing. You know, they're shining. They're filled with joy. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. What is a, uh, what is an ashamed face look like? You, know, you can read a lot of what's going on inside someone by looking at their face, right? It's not just the words, it's the face, the countenance we say. And so you've got two different kinds of countenances here in verse five, radiant or ashamed. Ashamed, think of blushing. Um, you know, not, not looking you in the eye, you know, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said it. But radiant, the face is open, it's glad, it's, you can see that something's going on here, right? That's the face of someone who, who, who trusts in the Lord. They look to him and were radiant, their faces will never be ashamed. You'll never come to the place where you think, I was really stupid for trusting the Lord. That was a bad idea. How embarrassing. I trusted the Lord and look what happened. No. And then in verse six, he's back to himself. This poor man cried, me, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Notice, he, remember back in 1 Samuel, the, the people of Gath looked at David and then they, what did they call him? The king. He was already anointed king. He had a, a, a reputation, they knew who he was. He was a man of, of uh, strength and, and power and battle and all that kind of stuff and had a claim to the throne. And when he talks about himself yet, he says this, this poor man, this poor man, I'm just a poor man. And he wasn't faking it. He knows his place before God. This poor man cried, I am poor, I have nothing, everything, I'm totally dependent on God. I am nothing in myself, 
I'm just a poor man, I'm just poor. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And then he goes back to the people of God in general. He says in verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. This is always true. This is true of everyone who who calls on the name of the Lord. He saves them. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He rescues them. Now, when it says the angel of the Lord here, all through the Old Testament, that is a title given to, I believe, uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, before he comes as a man, before he comes in flesh, He's all through the Old Testament. You see him everywhere. Once you, once you open your eyes and see what's actually there, you see this person. Uh, sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he's called the angel of the covenant. Sometimes he's called the word of the Lord uh, or just the angel or the captain of the Lord's army. Remember from, uh, from, from Jericho? Yeah, Jericho. He, he comes and he, and, he, and he stands before Joshua and Joshua worships him. He speaks as the Lord himself is speaking. This is not an angel in the, in the created angel sense. This is the Lord. This is the Son of God. And so David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. You know what it means to encamp around. It's a, he, he builds a wall, he sets up defenses, He puts guards on the wall, right? He encamps around them. He protects them. Nothing can get through. No enemy can get through without his knowledge and will. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. This is true of the Old Testament. How much more is it true of us with the Lord Jesus himself, fully revealed, fully glorified? We know him. He rescues us. Verse eight. He starts exhorting us even though he's still in the hymn part. (laughs) He says in verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, taste and see. There are a lot of people who grow up in churches who never taste, never see. They hear about it. They hear about it so often that they think that they've sort of tasted, but they haven't because they haven't actually tasted. Maybe some of you are that way. What would it be like to um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor back in the 1700s in America, he he said, um, he's talking about this idea So what is it like if you had never tasted honey? Right? Has everyone tasted honey? Is there anyone here who has not tasted honey? All right. Uh, Oh, John, I don't believe you for a second. (laughs) All right, okay. So you have to imagine. Imagine having never tasted honey. And someone's trying to explain it to you. What does honey taste like? Well, I mean, it's sweet. Does that get at it? 
There's more to honey than sweet, isn't there? So what do you say? Well, I mean, it's kind of like you can taste the flowers inside the, uh, the honey. It's like, well, okay. Here, here, just taste it. Taste and see. There's no way to explain it. There's no way to describe it. There's no way certainly to experience it until you taste. So taste. You don't believe God is good? Oh, really? Well, here, take a bite and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not bitter, but good. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good. No matter what, uh, how you've been sinned against, no matter who has hurt you, no matter how bad you think your parents are, whatever, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, who hides in him, who takes shelter in him. Then he says in verse nine, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Oh, fear the Lord. Come on, fear the Lord. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. The most vicious, capable, powerful predator, the lions, the young lions, right, in their prime, sometimes they go hungry. But they who seek the Lord shall never be in one of any good thing. So he says, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is all through this psalm. And we live in a day that is crazy because we, even Christians, think that no, actually Christians don't have to fear the Lord and shouldn't fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord should be the farthest thing from your mind. That's, that's the day we live in, right? What do you mean fear the Lord? That's an Old Testament thing. We live in the New Testament. What do you mean fear the Lord? Uh, perfect love casts out fear. First John. What do you mean fear the Lord? Yeah, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. It's all through the, it's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. This is the mark of a, of a man or a woman or a child who has humbled himself before the Lord and who has a new heart, who knows God. You can't know God and not fear him. And the, and the New Testament is filled with this, okay? I don't have the time to prove that to you. Read the Bible. I didn't mean that snarkily, really. Well, maybe I did. Uh, This reminds me of Romans 8, these words. Those who seek the Lord will not lack anything. Those who know the Lord, those who fear the Lord, those who have tasted and seen that he is good. Listen to this from Romans 8. He says, it's starting in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The good is for you to be conformed to the image of his son, not to have uh, flowery beds of ease, but to be conformed to the image of his son. And he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Then he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is against us? What's the answer? If God is for us, who is against us? Nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's given you his son. His son. He's delivered him over to death for you, and somehow you think he's not gonna care for you? Really? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer to that? What's the answer to that? Nobody. Nobody. There is no charge against you that can stick. You're righteous in God's eyes because of Christ. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Nobody. Verse one of chapter eight starts with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Who is he con- who condemns? Nobody. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nobody or nothing. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear fear him, there is no want. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Any good thing, anything that's good for you. Everything that's good for you, God gives you. If he gives it to you, it's because it's good for you including pain. Well, so much for David's hymn. Let's quickly look at the sermon. All right. Here's the point of the sermon, starting in verse 11. And we'll go through it quickly. The point of the sermon is fear the Lord and trust him. And he will deliver you. So verse 11. Come, you children, Listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So here he is, he's in the cave, he's escaped from Achish, out of the frying pan of Saul, into the fire of Achish, and he escapes that, because God delivers him. And now he's in the cave, they're hiding, this ragtag, rabble group of motley, who knows who's, right? And he's sitting around and he says, hey kids, come here, come. I got a lesson for you. Come, you children, listen to me. And I'm gonna teach you something. What is he gonna teach them? What does he say? The fear of the Lord. 
the fear of the Lord. This is what our children need to be taught. The fear of the Lord. He is majestic, he's glorious, he's filled with mercy and compassion and kindness and wrath and righteousness and judgment. And he will have pity on you if you call upon him, but he is not to be trifled with. Fear the Lord. Don't presume anything with him, fear him. Come, you children, listen to me. And so David uses his trials, he uses his experience, he uses everything he's just gone through, and it's not wasted because he uses it to teach. And he uses it to teach children. Why? Because he's humble. He's humble. And here's the lesson. Fear the Lord. What do you mean, David? Well, verse 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Right? Hey, kids, do you want to have a good long life? Anyone? Good long life? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Now we're having the children's sermon, right? Anybody? How do you want to have a good long life? Okay, good. How do you do that? Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Well, that's weird. (laughs) I weren't expecting him to say that. Um, But it perfectly fits with all of scripture, doesn't it? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. True piety, true religion, true godliness always works its way out into the tongue. James. Chapter one, verse 19, listen to this. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Call yourself a Christian all you want. Think of yourself as a, as a godly man or woman all you want. I don't care. Right? That's what he's saying. If you don't bridle your tongue, that's worthless. He goes on in chapter three, I'm not gonna read it, saying the tongue is a fire. If you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. Remember this? And so David says, listen, Children, you want to live a long life? You, want to, you got to fear the Lord. What's that look like? Well, keep your tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil. And your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's what it looks like. In other words, it actually looks like something. In fact, it actually sounds like something. 
How do you talk? What do you talk about? Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. He is always looking, ready to bless. He's always listening, ready to answer. Now, is that your God? Do you think you have to twist his arm to listen to you or to notice you? Uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, I shouldn't even bother because, I, you know, he's probably mad at me anyway and I don't know. Is that your God? What does that make you? It makes you an idolater. Because that's not the true God. The true God, the eyes of the Lord, are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Always ready to hear. Always ready. Looking, waiting to see and to hear you call out to him. But the face, verse 16, but the face of the Lord is against evildoers. He's looking at the righteous, waiting to hear their cry. How can I help you? I'm here to help you. That's the truth. And yet his face is not, He's, it's not that he's not looking at the, at the evildoers. Oh, he's looking at them. Right? The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles and the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the, those who are crushed in spirit. He doesn't, he's not waiting to crush you further. The smoldering wick, it says of Jesus, he won't snuff out. The bruised reed, he doesn't just knock it over and break it. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Pastor Bailey has told this, I've heard him say it many times, um, about his father and mother who lost several uh, sons in their youth, children, buried them, they're dead. And he said that his parents said um, they never felt, they were never more certain of the love of God as when they were walking away from one of their children's graves. Why? Because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. If you're brokenhearted, draw near to the Lord. He loves to draw near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Well, here's how it ends, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Amen. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. The afflictions of the righteous aren't designed by God to crush you or to kill you or to destroy you. The afflictions of the righteous are designed by God to save you and to strengthen you. That's why we're to consider it all joy when we face all these trials. 
because that, those trials produce in us faith. They produce in us humility and hope. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. Their own evil will slay the wicked. Their own works will slay the wicked. Uh, scripture talks about the pit, the pit that the evil dig as a trap for the righteous. Well, who falls in it? Not the righteous, the evil. The stone that they rolled to crush the, the righteous. Who gets crushed? The wicked. Haman, who built a, a, a gallows to hang Mordecai on. Remember this from the book of Esther. Who gets hung on, Morde on Haman's gallows? Haman. Evil will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. They will be condemned. The righteous should, be, should find comfort there. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here are the lessons of this psalm. Be humble before the Lord. Be humble. Be the poor man that David was. Humble yourself before him. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Call out to the Lord to save you, to deliver you. Praise him with your mouth when he delivers you. Praise him all the time, even when he hasn't delivered you yet. Let your praise, his praise be continually on your mouth. And if you live like this, a life of faith, that's all it means, it's simply a life of faith, God will deliver you. God will deliver you. That's what we are about to eat and drink to. We remember his death. We remember his salvation. He went to the cross and to the grave to deliver you. Do you believe that? If you do, the supper is for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would draw near to us now. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of it. Thank you for David. Thank you for writing this down so that we can be encouraged and strengthened by his life. And we pray that you would make us humble before you. Even now as we come and eat at your table, Lord, we pray that you would serve us. We need you. We need what you have to feed us. And so, Lord, please feed us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.